0: Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, June 15th. Today we have an interview with Jamie Powell. Uh, this was a fun one.
1: And it's not the Fed Reserve chairman. We made that yeah, joke well,
0: with him, but... I don't think it i don't think it landed, but uh, yeah, it was fun. We talked, not really stock specific. I mean, I guess we got into some companies, but really just sort of what we're seeing in the market, what he's seen in the market, kind of where he thinks froth might be. Any highlights for you?
1: Yeah, so we should explain who he is. He is the... Journalist at the financial times and he writes for alphaville ft alphaville and that is basically the european wall street journal the london-based wall street journal if you need a You know comparison so it's kind of the european financial newspaper And yeah, he does a lot of opinion stuff on kind of the bubbles the micro bubbles some of the big topics some of the corporate Potential frauds that are out there. So exciting stuff Uh, it was not an uninteresting interview and my favorite part had to be The discussion about Trevor Milton and Adam Newman's children hanging out, why that might not be the best (laughs) use of uh, civilization's resources, it was funny. So that was my favorite part.
0: It was a lot of fun. All right. uh, Before we get to the show, though, uh, a word from our sponsor, 7investing. Use our code CCM. You get $10 off your first month. It's only $7. I think we're getting close to the price hike here. Or should I say, the flexing of its pricing power. The
1: flexing, yes, yes. Uh,
0: so get in while you can.
1: You Lots know. of good research. Seven stocks pick. Seven stock picks each month, plus additional research on top of that. Follow ups, video stuff, tons of stuff. You know, you could spend a lot of time on their website learning about investing, learning how businesses work. All it's that a good, good idea stuff.
0: sourcing place for sure. Exactly. All right. Uh, without further ado, let's get to the show. All right. Today we are welcomed by Jamie Powell, a reporter for FT Alphaville. So I guess let's start there. Uh, how did you end up there? How did you end up in the world of finance? And uh, I guess, what do you do now for anyone who doesn't know?
2: Um, so FT Alphaville is the FT's financial blog. So it started off in 2008 as one of the first proper media blog this is the kind of golden age of blogging um pre-twitter pre most like social media as we know it now anyway um and it's sort of evolved now to become kind of market's commentary and opinion and analysis and it blends news opinion and analysis i um, like a good blog does right it's one person giving you their point of view telling you a little bit about the news and then riffing on it um, um, and uh i got into financial journalism in the weirdest way so um i had a very strange 20s um so for my graduate degree i did filmmaking for my um i know my undergraduate i did filmmaking uh and then i did a master's in russian studies which was mainly russian cinema and russian literature and russian philosophy so i got very deep in the weeds there um, and while i was doing that a friend asked me if i wanted to come place play bass in a new band he was putting together um, and I thought, well, I've got a bit of free time. I'm, you know, I'm studying, I've got eight hours a week of tutorials. I'm writing essays, but I've still got some time to do something else. Um, so I did that and that started to kick off as my master's finished. So it went from playing small shows in London to playing and meeting all of the big agencies, meeting all the big labels, going on tour, playing important shows, doing um, uh, doing also recording, et cetera, et cetera, getting on the radio. Um, but it, it, the thing about the music industry is, is that it's kind of like a video game. Like you need to pass each level right. to make it onto the next step. It's not like a normal career where if you have, if you get fired from somewhere, it might not always be your fault. It might not always reflect fully on you. Like in the music industry, once you're not signed or your first album bombs, you're dead and you have to completely restart from the bottom again with a new project, a new identity. So, basically, we got to the point with uh, where we were like talking to major labels and independent labels, and we just didn't get signed. And it just bled from there. We just like bled out for a year from there, which was super frustrating because it's all about momentum. And then when you can just see the momentum die, there's nothing you can really do. It's just, That's how the music industry works, right? Um, So I did that um, until I was 23, 24, and then I kind of thought, well, you know what? I probably should get a real job. So um, I took the first person who would take me, um, which was an education software startup here in London. I worked there for four years. And while I was working there, um, I got really into finance in my free time. It's quite hard to explain, but I think it kind of started when I had a friend who was an analyst at um, Nevsky Capital, which was a really famous emerging markets hedge fund here in London. Um, uh, it was run by Martin Taylor, who I think he's interviewed in the Jack Schwager book, or like the, one of the most recent ones. One of, yeah, one of them. Yeah. I think the hedge fund wizards he's in. Um, and um you know, when we went on a holiday to Italy together for a weekend with some other friends, and he was talking about jobs, and he was like, oh, I was like, what do you actually do as a job? Because, you know, all I know about hedge funds is that you guys make lots of money. Like, that was my my nurse, my, my knowledge of finance. Like, I had read economics books. I had, like, a decent understanding about economics, but I didn't really understand that finance and economics always kind of split out academically. Mm-hmm. So, um, I um, he told me, and I was like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. What's so you like studying? You're making judgments. You're making bets. Um, using lots of data, it's very dynamic. I was like, that sounds like an interesting thing to do. It's a bit more like what I enjoyed doing at uni, which was reading a lot and studying and then making calls, basically on old texts, not something that's constantly moving. Um, so he was like, here are five books to read. You should read these five books, see what you think. And so he gave me a list of five books, five books I'm sure you guys have read, you know, included Guy Spears' book, uh, the Warren Buffett biography, The Snowball. I think it must have been the David Ironhorn book as well and one or two others. Um, And I thought, well, I read those five books in a month and a half. And I thought, oh, this is fascinating. So I just kind of, in my free time at the startup, I just read a lot. And I was reading a book a week. Um, And then I did my investment management certificate, which is kind of a graduate. It's like a graduate CFA. It's like a junior CFA you do if you're a first year at a fund fund house in london so i did that in my free time and i was applying for junior jobs but i, I was coming up against the barrier of well your cv is completely bonkers like we've got yeah. you versus someone who went to cambridge and did maths right so like yeah. in, in the end i was really struggling to get past the fourth or fifth level of the interview process like i get through and then i just you know in the end you just it's fair enough you lose out to those people um so and i saw fd alphaville was hiring and i'd always read it and I always enjoyed writing at school, uh, so I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll just ha- have a go at the application. Like I think my knowledge base is pretty good, and I got the job. So they took a swig on me. So I've been there since um, early 2018, March 2018. So three and a half years now, and um, kind of continuing on the learning I was doing from from before, basically, but doing it as a living. So,
0: read. were you, were you uh, doing any investment writing prior to joining, or was it kind of just writing and then you? learned about investing you're like, I can combine these?
2: Yeah, it was that. It was that. I think I was just got really interested in, I just, you know, markets are super, Like as someone who wasn't that interested until I was 25, 26, it, I, I just found it like really engrossing and really dynamic. Um, so I wasn't really doing much of investment writing. You know, I was meeting up with people and I was getting a bit of a name for myself on Twitter and I was, I was building, I was doing getting a little bit of momentum that way, but I hadn't got to this. But I was struggling to get in the door, and I think that's the key thing with um, any anything in life. What whatever you want to do is just getting your getting your do, getting a job, which will get you in the right direction eventually. Right. Right. So yeah,
1: yeah. And then some of the stuff you've written about. I mean, you cover a lot of different topics, but is the kind of the the golden age of fraud? I guess is what a lot of people have termed it. I guess that's what Jim Chanos Can- coins it. Do you kind of agree with him that we're in that? I know that. Your experience, you may have started in 2018, so you, you weren't kind of doing this during the dot-com period, but you know, what makes this two- to three-year period different from others? And are you seeing it in like, the United Kingdom too? Because I know there's a lot of examples here in the United States.
2: Um, I think we are an age in a golden age of fraud. I think in particularly in the last 18 months, it's felt quite overwhelming, as a, even as a journalist, just to know what to write about. I just, sometimes I wake up and like, Look at stuff that's happened on Twitter. I'm like, it's it's almost made me feel jaded about like so jaded about markets, like how the volume of it. Um, yeah, it, it's it's. I mean, it's such a big topic, but yeah, I do think we are. I, I'm, and I, I'm not sure what the causes or symptoms are, but it seems to me that um, you know the behaviour of some market participants at the moment is just so egregious and so unchecked that it that. Um and it, it's not just in the US, it's definitely here in Europe as well. Maybe it's even worse in Europe, arguably. Um that um I don't know. It's quite hard to know how it reverses back like we did in the dot-com era. Because you know, the end of the dot com era was marked with two or three giant frauds and prosecutions. We had Enron, we had Worldcom, and a few others. Uh Adelphi, maybe I'm getting that right. There were there were a few other blow-ups around that time, like big companies, you know, billion dollar blow ups. But it seems at the moment, we're, we're, there some, we're losing tens of billions of market caps some days in some companies when the most obvious information comes out about them, you know, um, and um, or like public information. It's not like someone's whistleblowed on the company or, you know, with like for instance, with Enron, the SPVs, um, which Andy Fastow was using to mark their assets at a false values, we didn't know, really know that until it blew up, right? Like that information was private. You could see the SBVs and all these weird transactions going on, but it was a bit of a sideshow to actually just Enron's business just looked very precarious and very um, volatile in terms of its revenues by the time it blew up and they were doing all sorts of odd things in broadband, et cetera, um, and electricity arbitrage. Um, but now it's like, I mean, I remember reading the, the Hindenburg report and, and I'm not saying... You know, I, I don't want to be calling anything thing a fraud. I've got to be very careful with what I say because I'm a journalist. But I remember reading the Hindenburg report in Lordstown, and and I think they were talking about, the, there was an order for a hundred trucks or two hundred trucks, and it was re- and, the, and the order was from a company registered to an apartment cheap apartment block in. Oh yeah, I remember reading uh, that. Ryan knows this. Ryan, it was knows
0: this. almost like a billion dollars worth of orders
2: to orders. Yeah, yeah, apartment. Yeah. yeah, and I me- I remember reading that and thinking. That's <laughs> just in such plain sight. I was kicking myself in the way for not look- noticing it, you know. Yeah. But that's the volume thing as well. I was like, I was it's aware of fun. all town motors, as you're aware of all the other ones, but you know, yeah. Anyway, it seems like when you lift up the trunk of any of these businesses, it's just there's nothing there, you know. Yeah, yeah. As an um, investor, I get scared about uh yeah. what what is this company doing? But um, the two to three, yeah, I think in the last two to three years, um, it's hard to know. I, I, I think the main point I would make is that we've been in a kind of 20 to 30 year period of very light regulatory um, action, whether it's the SEC or in the UK, it's the FCA or FSA as it used to be, or in Europe with the European regulators, whether it's Baffin, the AMF, CONSOB, uh, which is the Italian regulator. but. The problem is when you're like underfunding these places for so long and um, not giving them the resources they need to do their jobs and they can't compete for workers. You know, if you're a graduate coming out of law school, Harvard Law, like, are you going to go to Debevois and Plimpton or are you going to go to the SEC? Like, and the money is, you know, the money difference is just gigantic. So you just end up losing, you know, you get this talent drain effect. And the people who do go to the SEC, don't want to upset Wall Street because they probably want to go into a job, a private job afterwards. Um, and I think like like investments compound, that can compound in government authorities and regulators. And um, I, th- I think we've just got to the point now where everyone just feels a bit handcuffed. And there was a great a book by Jesse Eisenberg called The Chicken Shit Club about this, um, just about how everyone was scared about going after big frauds or, big criminal action whether it's the New York AG or the SEC because if you lose a case it's a massive blot on your record and if you go after someone that might hire you they're never going to hire you and it's just this I just I think I think I I will I think that's the thing that surprised me the most is a lack of government action or regulation around this world I mean SPACs were obviously becoming a huge thing last year and no one was doing anything and then we hear the SEC is like looking into it and you're like okay they're looking into it but like, kind of well, over now. <laughs> yeah, now it's over. And like, is this going to be, I mean, you know, Chainos also says, you know, regulators are archaeologists, right? But I think it's never been clearer really in this in market environment. But now they're archaeologists with blunt tools, I think. Maybe they used to have sharper tools back in the day. So um,
1: Right, right, right. It's,
0: it's, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've watched the show Billions, but it just yeah. very realistic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> have you covered, a, do you cover Greensill at all? I know that's something. Yeah. We kind of don't know what's going on.
2: I could tell you a little bit about green. So. Like, uh, I haven't written about it, um, but um, it's the FT. Um, so we've had a few big corporate um, blowups and, uh, in, in Europe. We had Wirecard, which was a payments company, European technology, pay- technology company. It was a fintech company in payments that turned out to be a gigantic fraud. Um, half the business was made up and the other half of the business made no money. Um, but of course, they were growing at thirty percent every year, and when yeah. I mean, they got into the German blue chip index called the DAX, which only has thirty companies. So it's like getting into the Dow, right? Um, and um, yeah, so that was a disaster for corporate Germany and the stuff. I mean, if I, I can't go into that, but worth reading up about that one if you're not read about it. It's complete, it's, it's it's absolutely bonkers. You know, I go back to the regulator's point. You know, there were people at the regulator trading the stock as they were investigating it. So just to get an idea, kind of idea about what was going on there, um, but Greenstone, yes, yeah, so Greenstone was a um, let's do a little bit about it. Um, so it was a very boring business. On the so it called itself a fintech business, but basically what it did was um, reverse factoring. So um, it just inserts itself between a business's um, suppliers and the business. So the suppliers want to get paid faster. Let's say you're. Tes, you know, Tesco is a big supermarket chain, the biggest supermarket chain in the UK. They normally pay their suppliers in 60 days, right? So the suppliers would rather get paid in 30 days, but get paid a little less. And Greensill would sit in between Tesco and the supplier and collect the money and get a little bit of yield. Um, so it's really just a boring old financing business, right? Um, and, and of course, you can see why it would work because um, everyone wins, right? Like Tesco keeps its payments terms. The supplier gets paid faster, and green Greensill makes a little bit of margin. Um, and then what they were doing was they were taking this money owed to them, and they were bundling it up and selling it to an investment investment funds, mainly one run by Credit Suisse. Um, and um, it just—I I, I, don't—it's not everything has come to light, and but it—it—it it, it seems there was a lot of shenanigans going on at the business, and not all of the. Uh, receivables might have been real, um, and um, they were doing financing of of receivables that had the sales that had yet to happen, i.e., projected sales. Um, uh, and, and, and it was that, it was a class, it was a classic thing actually in markets where you get a finance company growing at forty percent or thirty percent or seventy percent, and in the end, like the only way you could grow that fast is by loosening your standards. Because there's no secret source in finance. It's all about like un- underwriting and due diligence and making sure you're lending to good credits, right? Or whatever you're in, you're in or, or writing insurance ins- for, for people who will not crash their cars, et cetera, right? Like that's the secret source of finance. And if everyone could grow at 30%, then they would. But unfortunately, there's not enough customers to grow at 30% offering the correct terms. So if you loosen your terms, you can grow faster. Um, and I, I, that's basically, I think, what happened at Greensill. Um, but there's a real interesting political element to it because Lex Greensill, who's an Australian financer, who ran the company, founded it. Um, he worked, He was involved with the UK government for a period of time and David Cameron, our former prime minister, was also an advisor to the business. Um, and it turns out that David Cameron had been lobbying the government to let Greensill manage some of the COVID loans um that were being dished out so there's also this kind of insider westminster political element to it as well so it's taken on that whole extra level of of scandal but at its core it's really just a bit it's just it's just someone that can overstretch themselves and maybe maybe to the point where um, it got into the kind of gray legal areas, but um, I, I can't really go further than that because um, as you might know, li- libel law in the UK is extremely aggressive. So it got to be great Right, law. right. We don't want yeah, to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked. Thanks to Advanced Security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced Security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: Another topic you've written about a lot uh, is sort of the electric vehicle companies. We just talked about Lordstown Motors. Uh, what do you think's made that so uh such a speculative area i guess is what i'd say um and then what's the craziest company that you've seen in that say, <laughs> so i guess there's been a few so what's the craziest ev stock you've seen
2: um i think electric vehicle stocks well it's hard to mention them without mentioning tesla and, and tesla's run in 2020 where it 10x xed I think last year and um that cr- that's created a lot of enthusiasm for the space that previously had been like almost non-existent, you know, price begets sentiment in markets. And it just completely changed the sentiment towards a whole number of businesses tangentially involved in EVs, whether it was charging, um, battery tech, um, uh, you know, fuel cells, et cetera. Um, um, yeah. And, and I think that's been the main driving force. I just think that, um, and, and you, and you mix that in with, um, younger people's concerns about the environment, correct concerns and them wanting to put their money into something that will do good. That's extremely like moral, moral, like a, a moral element to investing is seriously powerful force. And, um, not that every EV company completely overlaps with an ESG mandate, but I mean, most of them do. And I, I, um, I don't think it's just inter- institutional money so much. I just, I just think that like, people wanted to be part of this clean future and oh and it happened that these stocks seem to be going up you know two to three x in a month and then you combine those things together and you've got this very powerful force but i think it's mainly price i think um price and just a hunger for green investments um from mainly the retail community but also some institutional money as well and then of course on the other side wall street willing to feed them
1: yeah, and then you have the, the, the loosening or, or the loosened SPAC regulations where you can make the 2024-2025 estimates. Everyone's going yeah. to revenue by 2025. There's no yeah requirements on that. That
2: stuff is absolutely incredible. But yeah, no, yeah. Um, the, the fun thing is just opening SPAC decks. I mean, I did this big spreadsheet of all the EV stocks and the 2023 versus 2020 numbers, i.e. what was in the SPAC decks. And it's just... <laughs> You know, okay, companies can go from two million to three hundred million of revenue. Like we know that's possible, but we also know that the distribution of those companies is extremely small. Yeah. Like if you've ever read Michael Marbuson, you know you'll know that. Like, um, and that that will be. It's not unfair to say that we will see that more frequently in this age because businesses can just grow a lot faster in the information age. I think that's also true. Um, but um, yeah, I think some of those projections, I and mean, we've already seen some of them beginning to unwind, and I think that's going to be a big theme in markets over the next year. Just looking at what they said in this back deck, looking at their 2022 numbers and being like, ah, okay, right, you know. Yeah, it was it's a little 10% wild. of what you said. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. What's,
0: so. the, uh, what's the craziest one you've looked at?
2: I still think Nikola is the craziest. I think Nikola is just bonkers. You know? <laughs> it's I,
0: mean, it's, I, I looked it's, it up.
1: It's still training at seven billion dollar market cap right now.
2: Yeah, it's at a seven. I looked it up. Yeah, it's at a seven billion EV, a seven billion market cap, six billion EV. Um, it still doesn't have a product. It still has a zero revenue. Like the founder, I think the craziest thing about it is. Again, going back to our point about some of it being in plain sight, was reading the um, again Hindenburg. Hindenburg did some some fantastic work last year. These are all the plaudits they've got. Um, but remember re- reading the Hindenburg report and and thinking, what well, the the brother who used to be a paver is now director of hydrogen and you know at the company and. Um, uh on stage they had no like they when they had the truck unveiling i think it was in 2017 or 16 you could see the wire underneath the truck like turning on the the headlights like it wasn't actually being powered by anything a like external power source and then there was obviously like the truck rolling down the hill which had no (laughs) wasn't being propelled by anything um um, and i think like the fact that I mean, it got up to like an 80 or 90 billion market cap. So that, I mean, that's on where the shares outstanding are now. And I think the shares outstanding have gone up. So maybe it was like of 70 mark last summer. Um, but the fact it's still got a 7 billion market cap and it's rallied 50% in the last 30 days. And Trevor Milton is worth 6 billion, I think. No, he's worth 5.5 billion and he's still got 10% equity. So he's still got 600 million of equity in Nikola. Like how... And like, what kind of age are we in where I have no pro Like, if these things blow up, these things happen, and there's always been frauds um, right. or fraudulent behavior. I don't want to say this is fraud um, in markets, but, like, we're getting to the point now where people are so rewarded for it, where the incentives are so obvious for you to do it. I th- that's the kind of, that's the scary thing for me. So when Trevor Milton never has to work, like, his family have generational wealth. You know, there's going to be Miltons running around and t- to. Two, three, four, five, you know. Yeah, they'll be um, hanging out with the two, Adam Newman. In 240 years. Yeah, and they'll be friends with Adam Newman's kids, you know? <laughs> like, that is, that's kind of scary. Like, that goes against, like, what we're told, how the world works, like, fundamentally. Um, and I, and I, that's, yeah, I think that, that, I think that's the really worrying thing for me is fine. Like, if he just turned into being a nobody and he had a couple of million, I, whatever. But, like, the fact he's got now, like billions of dollars—it's just mad yeah. um, for effectively failing. Like that's just not how the system should work. And somehow we've it get to the point where it can happen. So, yeah. Um, I say Nikola, I think, just because the size it got to, and yeah, the
1: size it's, it's still out. and it's—it's it's clearly yeah, the like, size going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's not going anywhere. Like, yeah. yeah. All right. Do we want to talk about the, the micro balls? Yeah, we can. We can transition to that. So. You know, there, there's a lot of investors that we talk to and you can see like I, just anyone can see it on Twitter. There's a lot of takes out there that we're going to see a lot of these mini bubbles, these short bursts of volatility, either due to just the Wall Street bet stuff or just Such everyone can react to things automatically now. Um, do you agree or disagree with this? And, and really, have we already seen that transition the last few years?
2: I think that it, i think it's here to stay i think it's a new it's a change in market structure and we and you know it, zero zero um commission broking and the rise of the, and the app and the game i mean markets are a game and i don't think we should like people can pretend like there is everyone loves everyone calls it the greatest game on earth like investors love talking about the game of investing but i think the gamification of it um via apps and not having any cost to trading have just made it i've supercharged it um Uh, and you combine that with social media and the fact that there's just this constant feedback and the feedback loops are so tight and so much stronger now um i think i think mini bubbles are here to stay many bubbles and busts i mean we were seeing it in crypto in 2017 as well right so it's not particularly new we had icos coming along people would pump them on discord channels and then they get out and they would collapse and that was over like a day or two but now we're seeing it over six months maybe um Um, But yeah, I I, I think the information, I think the the speed point is really important here because I I was thinking about it, you know, in 99, I remember my dad's mate was a stockbroker and my friend in 99 was like telling me at school, I was like 12, he was like, oh yeah, Marconi is like the hottest stock at the moment. So I remember going home and like looking up the stock price at the back of the paper. And obviously Marconi was like a zero two years later. But um uh, they were an, a tech, com- an IT company in, in Europe, but um, it, but I, I think if you were trading the stock back then, right, you could either call up your broker and get the price, or you might have had the internet at work, which was good enough to check it. Um, but to sell it, I mean, and to sell it on uh, after a big move, you'd probably be so late to it that you just throw in the towel. And being able to like track like every one of these gamestop and like guys night like these researchers, they know what candlesticks are they they, they know all about technicals they know what the theme is there's always like a thesis around these companies they may be completely and wildly incorrect like as we saw with clover health or um you know getting a short uh, interest wrong etc but um they know what they're doing and they can react much faster um you know, in 2000, if a stock had gap down 20%, you might only know the next day, right? And then you might have to call your broker and the trade might only get executed by the evening. And I just think that, that now being compressed into five minutes, just it's a completely different world in markets. Um, but it's a very, I still think it's a small corner. I, I don't, I mean, we might see it going to large caps, maybe, but... Um Tesla. but then again I say AMC was like a 30 billion market cap at one point right so what am I talking about yeah um, <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> Tesla yeah. Tesla's kind of uh, yeah, like a Yeah I agree yeah uh,
2: yeah. Tesla I mean to be fair to be fair I think I mean we we you could talk as you know I think it's easy to deride Tesla Q on Twitter and they they're quite fun to poke fun at um but last year they were quite right that some of the call option activity in Tesla last year was completely bonkers like as soon as the stock began to crack a little you'd see gigantic purchases of call options out of the money, like you dragging the share price up. Um, and um, I have no idea who was doing that. I mean, there was some suspicion it was SoftBank when that SoftBank story came out about the NASDAQ last year. Um, but yeah, I think the Tesla, Tesla's a bit of a blueprint and then um, uh, just on the short squeeze, um, call options, easy to get in and out. Um but then we're seeing everything stop in AMC. So, but I do think it's here to stay, whether it will be to the same degree when people have lost money and their boards, I don't know. Like that, that's the question. There will be a boredom factor to this for sure. But I thought it would happen by now when people could go out and go to bars and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but like turns out it's not. So, um, yeah, that thesis is collapsed, collapsed. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> do you think there's any way to like, uh, for regulators to
2: step in at all or is it because there's been I, don't, I don't know if they should step in man I, I don't I, like they should step I think I think the thing the, the thing they should step in is the supply of these companies like making sure like the CEOs are well you know the CEOs are, are, are vetted properly like the disclosures are good you know we saw with Clover Health that they didn't disclose was, I think there was an can't remember if it's an SEC investigation or an FDA investigation. There was a uh, they didn't disclose that in their filings and that sort of stuff like having clarity on that the SEC probably needs to do better with and the regulators need to do better with and and stopping people who have been involved in frauds in the past like launching specs and that that sort of thing. But I, I think with something like AMC and GameStop you know, we've seen silly things happen in markets before, and maybe on options trading. I think there's something to be said on that. But um like barriers. In down. the end, it is just a game, right? Like, I mean, you yeah. know, like quantitative funds have been doing this kind of stuff for ages, and no one yeah. left battered and eyelid, You know, the flash boys stuff um, was equally as egregious at times, in my opinion. So, um, it is just markets. Like, markets change, and. Um, it's painful for a lot of people who think that everything should trade around fundamentals, but it's a new environment, right? And you need to adapt just as people need to do adapt for like low interest rate environment, et cetera. So, yeah. um,
1: the, uh, and it seems like the, uh, if people want to risk a, a lot of money and if they are going to lose a lot of money, I mean, that's, yeah.
2: that's up to them. But also, I, I'd also say with GameStop, I mean, a lot of these people are in for a couple of hundred dollars or a couple of hundred pounds. There's very few whales really you know like and the ones that are big you hear about in the news but i think it's a lot of people just punting a couple of hundred for fun you know i don't think it's yeah. i don't think it's uh, hopefully it's not ruining a lot of people's finances although i have seen uh, there are a lot of people more than i thought who have several million dollars of tesla stock because of last year and I, that 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 does worry me a little like there are some youtubers who are Sitting on five million dollars of Tesla stock, you know, up from a hundred thousand and that and they won't sell. So I, that that that's that's a bit more of a concern for me. But did you see the wall-
0: story where it was like the guy who's like, uh I've got well, I forget what it was twelve, so it was 12, 12 million. Twelve. Million 12 Tesla million. Stock. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I just I just quit my job. And I was like, why'd uh, you quit your-? And he's like, and I'm not selling. And I was like, then why'd you quit your job? <laughs>
2: Yeah. What was it? Nine. That was when it was like 850, right? So it's 600 now. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. But in the end, that's their decision. And like, I I, I don't know. Like there has to be an element in markets where uh, you let this stuff happen, I think. um, And it bleeds out. Like you can't just, you know, we can't just like create market environments for one type of investing to work. Like, I I think, yeah. But Um, but it's super, it is kind of fun and you don't need to participate either. Like, you know, don't, don't short meme companies. Like how's that? How difficult is that? You know, (laughs) what do
0: you you think about this CEO is kind of leaning into it and sort of
1: leveraging it? I know we saw with AMC, I think this last week, I saw Cleveland Cliffs this morning, do some total antagonizing or it was maybe last night they were saying like. They were just doing basically the script of like AMC. They're were like, "We're heavily shorted. We hate the short interest on our company." And it was on CNBC, probably with like Kramer or something. And they were trying to basically broadcast to the world, "Is that kind of what you're asking about, too?"
0: Mm-hmm. Well, more like, what? I mean, in AMC's case, they're giving free popcorn to shareholders, like that kind of like like come in, you know, kind of like selling stock. Well, yeah,
2: selling stock, I don't know. I, I mean, they can lean into it. Like in the end, like they do. Like AMC, like is still in a precarious financial position they have a fiduciary re- duty to make sure the company doesn't go bust. Like, I don't know, leaning into what keeps the share price high and lets them raise more equity. I, 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 I like if they, if they, if, they, if they're, what they're saying is not true, then there's a massive problem there. But right. I think everyone's, I mean, the risks were in the, uh, in the prospectus last year, last week, it literally said, um, you know, the, the, this stock is incredibly volatile. It's detached from fundamentals, yeah. trade at your own risk, right? Like the people, people know what's going on. I think, um, and I, yeah, um, yeah. I think I think more the question is, shareholders should be asking like, when when the stock goes absolutely bonkers, is why um, why the CEO why they aren't selling shares. I mean, that's really the question yeah. they should be asking. So
1: yeah, yeah, it's a team uh, effort. We we're gonna yeah, yeah. And then you're gonna help, we'll help. you help yourself out at the end. I mean, it seems like yeah. AMC was one of the smart ones. There was a lot of um, software companies or maybe just tech in general last year mm. trading at 50, 60 times sales. And a lot of times they weren't selling stock, and that kind of seems like I don't know. You're not using your share price correctly, but
2: who knows? I think I think yeah that those those companies are interesting. Like the SaaS stocks, like clearly like when the economics work for those businesses, they're just incredible companies. I mean, like you can't you can every time I look at Adobe's quarters, I just like holy shit, this company is insane. Um, yeah. So when it when those businesses get to scale, so you can kind of understand the valuations and why they might not want to be diluting shareholders who have like stuck with them, whether they're anchor investors from the venture days or whether it's institutional shareholders. But yeah, there was probably a few cases last year where they should have sold more stock. Um, but then, then again, those businesses, unlike the meme stocks, they depend heavily on their share price to attract talent. So Selling stock is trickier, I think, for those businesses as well, right? Um, And I do think that's an... I've written about this a lot, but um, Cisco had this problem in the 2000s where because the share price got so high and then it fell and never recovered, and the company still did very well, um, it was very hard to attract talent because no one wants to join a company where the share price is going down or going nowhere. Um, I think Microsoft probably had this problem in this era as well. So ideally, if you're a tech company, you want... 25% 25% compound growth in your share price yeah. like Google's had or you know, or Amazon has had because someone who joined five years ago is now going to be rich. Like I can't imagine what it's like if you joined Tesla in January as an engineer and you got your stock options with like an 850 strike and now you're underwater and the guy sitting next to you with less experience who isn't as good as his job is now worth 20 or $30 million because he joined three years earlier. It, it's going to definitely create issues at companies like that, I think. Um, for for kind of on like an employee level and culture okay. level. So, um, but yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, it is an interesting, uh, interesting point about the software companies last year. But
0: interesting. Um, what about I, I guess with these? I guess you call them pockets of irrationality or sort of uh, speculative mini bubbles. Do you think they have any bearings on the overall market, or is it kind of just in their little corners?
2: Well, we saw um, AMC and GameStop. I think they're now the two, two out of three of the largest companies in the Russell. So clearly there's an index. People are investing in these companies. Okay, the amounts aren't large, 0.8%, 0.7% of the whole index. It's not like it's gigantic. It's not like Apple you know, in the, in the S&P 500. But um, I do, yeah, there is a market structure element to it for sure, especially if they can sustain the share prices. Um, but I, th- I think beyond that, um i'm not sure it's just it it feels like a sideshow but i think what we should be get i think the concerns will grow a little bit more for if if it really bleeds into like the wider larger market but i just think there's not enough there's not enough money to do it to be honest with you um so but yeah um for financial markets at large, I don't, I don't think, I think it's, I think it's more of, I, I, I it's kind of like a sideshow at the moment. And I don't think it's going to go away, but, um, yeah, I, I don't think it should be viewed as anything more than that. Like anything more. Um, I think, and, and it is a change in market structure, but it, uh, not a, a, it is a profound one for some people. If you're, if you're short selling a company that might go bankrupt it's got a high short interest that, that, you know, that is a change in market structure where you just begin to avoiding those companies. Um, but um, I, it doesn't feel super significant at the moment, but that could definitely change.
1: Yeah. 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 And it seems like it's above kind of our like pay grades where, you know, there could be like the value factor stuff, the momentum factor stuff that comes into mm-hmm. play, like that could be affected. But that's really, really behind the scenes. And it's, it's hard for us to tell. Yeah. Yeah, All right, sure. uh, wrap-up questions. Yeah, I guess we should do that. Um, this is stuff we just ask everyone. So, what is one sure. financial saying that you disagree with?
2: So I don't think about this. I think it's I think it's the kind of buy and hold mentality, um, which I always see as a layover from Warren. Kind of if you've read lots of Warren Buffett and um, follow a lot of famous investors, you know, a lot of them it's kind of low trading. Um not not trading much, buying good companies, holding on to them, and that's kind of gone with the market environment from the last ten years. Which is kind of like a, the kind of tiger cub era of investing, you know, like buying quality at a high price and just holding on to it. Um, but I I I think that is a because it's done very well over the last ten years, become a very popular mantra, um, and I, and it's not been true. And lots of you know, if you bought the Nifty Fifty in in 1973 or four, like these were those were fifty very good companies and it completely underperformed the market for the next 10 years or 20 years. Um, and not many of those businesses still remain actually. Um, but I also think it's, it also, mis- I think it misreads Buffett a little, because I think the, the buy and hold mantra comes from an era of Buffett where he was dealing with large pools of capital. And that was pretty much the only way to invest, right? Like if you've got 10 billion to invest, um, into one company. There's very few companies you can do that with. Um, so you're either buying businesses and, and they're de facto you're holding them because there's, there's no liquidity. Um, or you're buying very large companies. Um, and he's done very, very well at that since the eighties. But actually, if you look at Warren Buffett in the sixties, he was, you know, he was all over the place. He was a bit more like a Miller type investor than a, um, you know, he was doing kind of spin offs, warrants, um, in and out of little companies kind of, you know, net nets as soon as they met their cash value, he'd be out, et cetera. So I think, um, I do think it's like the buy and hold mantra is more of a function of liquidity. It should be used relative to like how much liquidity you have. And I don't think, um, or how much liquidity is available to you or relative to your needs. And for a lot of investors, um, I'm not sure it's it's that applicable. That is, if you're active investing, like if you're doing passive investing, then sure, like uh, you should be dollar-cost averaging and buying the index. Okay. like, but we you know, if you're trading an index fund, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't day trade index funds. But if you're buying stocks, like I was thinking about this. Um, I know a few guys who were in uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, right? And they brought that at like five to seven bucks. but And in January, it got, it got caught up in the GameStop stuff. And the thesis last year was good. They got a new CEO, they're cutting costs, it's a great brand. Like they, the the new CEO can turn the business around. You know, it's trading at like eight times normalized earnings. Like if we can, if, if the cost cutting works and they can maintain the same level of revenues, so the thesis was like solid and um, classic value thesis. But then it got caught up in the GameStop stuff in January, and it went to fifty bucks. And you got to be like, if you're buy, if you bought, if you bought and hold it at five bucks, you're like, I think this is a great business. I'm going to hold it for three years, see what happens. And it goes to fifty then you've got to be like, well, I'm out, you know, yeah. I'm out, right? Like yeah. I've made all my i made more money than I probably should have in a short amount of time. Like what's the use in buying? I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna buy and hold this. And the same goes for any quality quality companies that you, you know, ones in the quality bucket that get caught up in this world as well. Um so yeah, I think that in this in when there's as we're talking about these really mini bubbles, mini bouts of volatility maybe it helps to be a bit more nimble. And I think, yeah, and I just think the buy and hold thing maybe Maybe it's going to end up being not the best ten next 10 years versus the last 10 for it. Um, yeah.
1: Right, right. Yeah, because that's kind of in the, I guess, the circles that we kind of, the people that we talk to, it seems extremely consensus. And we're kind of in that boat as well. Like, you know, buy quality at a reasonable yeah. price, Darby, stuff like that. But it is worrying if it's like, all right, we all agree with this. Uh, you know, that, that's a little bit concerning, you know.
2: Yeah, I think there is... I mean, Paul Marshall, who's a really well-known UK hedge fund manager, um, runs one half of Marshall Waste, which is the biggest hedge fund in Europe. He made this point in his book that the Tiger Cub way of investing has become so popular that he's a bit concerned about it because there's so much crowding in these quality names. Um, What's that aerospace parts company that everyone is? Transdime. You know, something like that, which is just such a consensus long. I don't know like how how far can it go? I don't know. Maybe it can go on and like that's a great business and it's what it run the capital structure is very clever and they run the business very well. Um and I've heard it being pitched to me by a tiger cub before, you know, with his eyes lit up, you know, just in love with it. Um, but um I, I do think that um as we know in markets, you know, the value in the 2000s worked fantastic. Like that was a golden era of value investing, and now it's gone away and there's always going to be new eras and new ways to make money. And I think thinking that the kind of quality of buying whole world is here to stay, I'm, I'm not sure we'll, we'll maybe, we might not see a 2010 to 2020 period like that again. So, um, but yeah.
0: Right, but
2: it's well, a good thing to have on your arsenal there. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: Ca- kind of yeah. a random question. But if you talked about Buffett in the 60s, if he were an emerging manager today,
2: where do you think he'd be
0: looking? In he, the markets?
2: He'd be buying SPACs at par (laughs) and waiting for them to get caught up in the retail mania he'd be doing stuff like that i think yeah because you know yeah that was the best trade last year just buy a whole bunch of spacs at cash like there's no downsides the downside is like what like five percent or something and the upside was with the warrants was like you can make you know a thousand percent or some of these things like quite easily and i know a canadian hedge fund that did that last year and they made an absolute killing they just bought all of the, you know, they just did like 1% in 20 SPACs and they had like a SPAC pool at cash. Yeah. And yeah, I think he'd be doing stuff like that. I don't think he'd be doing, you know, American Express 10% waiting. Like, yeah. you know, um, yeah, you can totally do both right. as well. You can do both, but I think it's worth like thinking outside of like, I don't know, that that would that I think that's that's kind of how I would that's what I imagine he'd be doing. And he'd be doing a lot more of European and Asian stuff as well, because there's a lot more, it's that you know, that, those markets are not as. Um, While well covered as the US, so there's a lot more. Um, in, the information's poorer, so it's just there's there's a lot more opportunities, I think, in Europe and Asia. So,
0: yeah. yeah. What is uh, last question here? What's one piece of advice you have for anyone that's considering getting into finance or business or financial journalism?
2: Well, I think with financial... Journal- business and finance are different. Um, and I'm to be honest, I've never worked in finance. I have worked for a proper business. Um, but um, for journalism, I mean, look, there are hundreds and thousands. Of, like, there are hundreds of thousands of people who want to go and work at in an investment bank or work at a hedge fund. Um, there's hundreds of thousands of English graduates, very smart people who can write, who want to um, be journalists or financial journalists. But I think in this age it's good to differentiate yourself by having some knowledge base which might not exist amongst the people you're competing against. And I think um, the people who've done very well at the FT, um, uh, I'll say like Rob Smith, who's done the Green Greensill story, like he's been covering credit now for six years. And he went in um, to his first job as an English graduate from Cambridge. And, but over two or three years, just became very, very familiar with how credit agreements are structured, how bond documents are structured who the main credit and bond investors are in London and Europe, um, and just build a really insane knowledge base. And I, and I think um, if you're going into, especially financial journalism now, if you can offer something like that, you make yourself incredibly employable. Like and when I joined the FT, um, not like there's people the FT who've got great financial knowledge, but like not many people can reconcile a cash flow statement with a balance sheet, with a PL, right? Like, but I could do that. So that was something I offered different like i could read a financial statement and like know what was going on um and i'd say if you want to work in financial journalism like whether it's fx or like like money like structure of money like bank plumbing like having some knowledge some like very deep knowledge about one subject will really stand you in good stead because it means you can write about it really quickly and um, um and have an original take or like know where the story is rather than just you know writing out what the press release really says uh, right. and as we know in this day and age like corporate earning releases are incredibly like at, at, well, at worst they're deceptive i think in this day and age i mean i you know the the there's there's the, there's there's a few ride-sharing companies who are listed where i honestly think their corporate earnings are just it's like shambolic like it's incredible. yeah we're like we're gonna be adjusted yeah.
1: profitable soon right?
2: yeah adjusted but are profitable but then you read like you to get to the actual p l you have to scroll down like 40 pages And that's in the press release right uh, it, it, um, and the adjust, and they adjust change their adjusted the EBITDA um, every month or every quarter like they've added something they've taken something away like Lyft, take away their insurance costs I think well of course like you need to provide insurance to your drivers so that's an operating co- like but the problem is is like if you're well versed if you're like a great journalist, and you've got an hour to write the lift. I mean, you know, there's a big time pressure in journalism as well. I think this goes underappreciated, but sometimes by investors is like, sometimes you've got an hour to publish a story about Lyft's earnings, right? And like actually knowing what to look at is part of the trick. And if you're new on a beat, you're just going to say, Lyft expects to be profitable by the end of 2021. Shares moved up 7%. Um, the CEO said this, and that would be your kind of news story, right? You know, one one investment bank sell side said this. and that'd be, But actually to be like... Lyft lost another eight hundred million as a quarter as it profit as it promised to be profitable on an adjusted basis by the end of the year like that you know like just knowing what the right angle is when it comes to like numbers is a skill in itself so that's what I'd say to like financial journalists like up up a base of knowledge so you can feel comfortable doing something getting, getting to that point um and uh they'll really stand you in good stead because there's not many journalists um who have that level of knowledge um at the moment so Fascinating.
0: Yeah. All right. I think that's going to do it. That's all our questions. Where uh where can listeners find you? Like Twitter handle.
2: So I'm on Twitter and I always forget my handle actually. Um You're not the uh, I, chairman. That to be not the biggest No, pet it's that. So, so my handle is um AJB underscore Powell. Okay. Um and uh those are my initials. And um I'm also, you can email me if you want, uh, jamie.powell at FT.com. I mean, uh, my email's like out there. So um, if you've got a juicy story or something you think I should be writing about, you should let me know because uh, I'm always interested. So yeah. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, have fun. Thank you, guys. Cheers.
0: All right. Welcome back in. Thanks again to Jamie Powell for joining us. Had a lot of fun. Uh, But next, we have our own show notes, kind of riffing on the world of investing in our own way. Uh, And so I guess I'll kick things off. Um, And it's not really a story, but I was reading Jake Taylor's book this week called The Rebel Allocator. And if you don't know who Jake Taylor is, he runs, I'm blanking on the name of his fund. but
1: We had him on a month ago if you want to listen to an hour discussion with him.
0: Yeah, and he's just really insightful. He's also on the uh, Acquire's podcast. But he wrote this book called The Rebel Allocator. And in his book, he uses this three-pencil concept to illustrate how businesses kind of create value or how businesses can succeed or fail. Um, and by the way, good book. I understand why Charlie said he couldn't put it down. He just read right through from the beginning to the end. Um, it's it's easy to read. Uh, it's a lot of fun. But – Basically, I'll try to convey what this illustration looks like. So it's three pencils, essentially all pointing to the same place, and there's one in the middle. So it's kind of like a triangle, but it's – if you get what I'm saying. And then the the middle one's kind of like a pendulum. It can kind of swing. And so on the left pencil is marked cost. The middle pencil is marked price, and the right pencil is marked value. And so what he says is, In order for a business to thrive, the value derived to the customer, so the right pencil, has to be greater than the price the customer is charged, the middle pencil, which has to be greater than the cost of the good or service, which is the left pencil. Which kind of makes sense, but then you've got those in-between spaces. And between price and cost, you've got profit, obviously. But then between price and value, you have brand. And you can kind of swing that pendulum, that middle pencil, which is price, and determine, like, If you get really, really close, if you have minimal profits and you're providing a huge, uh, a lot of value, then your brand's stronger, that kind of thing. Uh, And then vice versa, if you're starting to raise or maximize profits, you can kind of mortgage that brand. Um, So do you think, do you kind of like this approach to thinking about like brand equity? Um, And then also what companies do you think have the biggest gap for you as a consumer between value and price?
1: Yeah, so, and then just to define that again, the value is the value to, it's not an investing sense, it's the value to myself or a typical consumer versus what you're paying. Yeah. Uh, I think that approach works. Yeah, it's a good analogy and I think that's whatever way you get to it when you're identifying a consumer brand or a, well, I guess not even a consumer brand. There's brands for Companies that are selling B2B, you have to decide what kind of value they're providing and how much, you know, they're charging people for that. And then that can help you determine the pricing power or the, you know, potential pricing power. Some companies might not want to do that. Uh, And then companies with the biggest gap, I mean, the easiest one would be some of these subscription services like Spotify. You're using it, at least for myself, I'm using Spotify two to three hours a day. And it's only, well, I'm on a family plan. So it's only, what is it, 17, 18 bucks a month for For six total, uh, I guess four on that plan. So, you know, four or five bucks a month. I mean, that's tremendous value there. Some of the streaming services for video, you could argue were, but, and I guess maybe Disney Plus is providing a lot of value now for only seven, eight bucks a month. Yeah. But Netflix is kind of more closer to fair value now. I mean, it's not, it's still fairly cheap. What about Chipotle? Nah, eh, I mean, it's food. It's food. I don't know. It's just food. Interesting. I don't know. <laughs> I think the people, I think, I think the people, look, uh, this is not an investing take, but the people I think Chipotle is like the best thing in the world, you just don't know how to cook. I'm sorry. Like, it, uh, d- the the whatever. I ask, <laughs> Go past it. Sorry. The
0: reason I ask about restaurants is because the illustration in this example was- It's pretty clear. Yeah, it's easy. A guy yeah. from- the, the guy who was telling this story or portraying this lesson uh, built sort of an empire in I think it was like Topeka Kansas or something okay. like that on fast food restaurants and so he's like every time we add an extra cost that'll help the customer that's expanding the value yeah and I was restaurants wise the only one I could think of that really does that for me would be Chipotle uh,
1: yeah I mean they're they're pretty good at trying to provide a lot of value and they probably do have a lot of pricing power just because of the fresh you know pretty decent quality i'm saying it's not that consistent it's pretty consistent compared to other restaurants but like sometimes yeah. we'll get a dud you yeah. know and they have that good uh, esg brand for um all the environmental stuff they do it's quick it's very convenient yeah i mean they, they definitely have some pricing power but i i don't know <laughs> that one yeah. there's some others i think more like digital services have a lot more pricing power yeah, that's probably true. All right, what's your story? Okay, this is, I guess, speaking of sub- streaming subscription services, Netflix is moving into a whole nother product category. This was, I think, an underrated story from the week that not many people were talking about. I guess there's all the meme stuff that's drowning things out right now. Uh, but it was an interesting announcement from the streaming giant. There's Netflix.shop. And it is a new website that just launched for merchandise and apparel, all based on Netflix shows. I'll give the quote from the press release. Netflix.shop will drop exclusive limited edition of carefully selected high-quality apparel and lifestyle products tied to our shows and brand on a regular basis. So, just merchandise. Uh, First off, though, I guess this gets me thinking. You know, we've been doubters of Shopify at whatever. It's at 40 times sales. Maybe it's lower now, 30, 35 with a little... uh, I guess you never know. It's still, you know, premium valuation, and we've kind of been a doubter of Shopify's long-term returns as an uh, as an investment from here. But everything they do, and this is with Shopify and a partnership with Shopify with Netflix here, it feels like everything they do is. is I'm thinking, well, we might get proved wrong on, on the Shopify. Uh, you know, we're not short or anything, but just kind of the bear take.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a no like, it's a no brainer for businesses that want to start like an e-commerce site that's the place to go even netflix yeah yeah and yeah i think even walmart no Was it walmart? no walmart does its own they have Someone their own else did one A camera like a big chain like a while back i'm, I'm sure they have a few on there but.
1: yeah but the only ones that really do their own now are would be walmart target amazon and then some of the other platforms but yeah I don't know. I feel like we're going to get proved wrong on Shopify. I'm okay with that. I mean, we're not going to lose any money, but I, I keep feeling like we're going to get proved wrong.
0: I mean, yeah, the business is kind of bulletproof, to be yeah. honest. And yeah. It's uh, the only quarrel is over valuation. Yeah. That's for sure a bad short thesis if you ever have one, I guess.
1: True, true. All right. Well, what do you think about this Netflix shop thing? Good idea. Can it be meaningful to Netflix's business? I don't think so. And I. Uh, well, what question?
0: I don't think it can be meaningful to the business. Uh, Maybe it's a good idea just to kind of build like more avid fan bases around your shows. But I don't – I'm not the kind of consumer that would buy this stuff. Also, there's not any – I don't know. I feel like – Well, you got to get out of – you got to get on your own. Yeah, I know. But I feel like merchandise that sells the best is like – comedy related merchandise if you're referencing shows
1: I think this is what it would be right yeah but do they have any comedy they shows have, that are yeah they have the exclusive they're the, to them yeah they have all the comedy they have what all the number one I mean like BoJack Horseman's like the number one uh, animated show now I mean yeah they have if you did if, if I saw someone walking around with
0: a BoJack Horseman show or a shirt and it had some quote on it I, I, I don't think anyone could relate to it
1: I think that is not true because if you look at the
0: rankings of that show, it's pretty high. I think CNBC could do it. Or not CNBC, sorry. NBC or Peacock could do something like this. I think, or HBO. I'm not sure if Netflix is there yet on the comedy side.
1: Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think I disagree. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I, I don't know. They have all basically all the new comedies. Would you buy a shirt from Netflix? Uh, I mean, I'm not a... No, but I think plenty of people will. Yeah, I suppose. It's, uh, but
0: this is like it seems like Ferrari to me, like Ferraris merchandise and apparel stuff. It's
1: not that relevant to the mm. actual business. No, but it and builds that's a the huge it, brand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Netflix is a bigger brand than Ferrari, but the the apparel, like, it's not necessarily to make money. It's just to get people to like your franchises more. I think it's a good idea, and. You know, again, we always say, you're, I guess, one, a lot of people look at optionality. And we kind of think it's an overused term. We always think it, you know, you should have a high bar when deciding whether a company has optionality. But I think with Netflix, it's clearly the case. They are kind of, and the way I like to describe it is they're kind of patiently waiting with a lot of levers like this that they can pull to make money. What are some other companies that you think are like this? I, I would say Facebook is pretty clear they were waiting on a lot of things with shopping stuff like that nintendo is one of those a lot of the video game publishers come to mind for me but that's biased those are companies we kind of look at a lot any others that you can think of shopify yeah is one shopify yeah that's tougher though add out so many
0: different services to help merchants yeah but that's is that really a different lever or is it just the same lever uh, you can do ad related stuff, mobile ads that like put everything together. Once you own that many merchants, there's you could do like a mall type thing. That, I guess Facebook is kind of similar with Instagram. I actually don't think Netflix has that much optionality in 10 years. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but in five to 10 years, well, I assume subscriptions is going to
1: make up the probably 95% of its revenue. Sure, sure, sure. But. Still the, for, the, for the last 10 years, they've done one thing, and that's it. And now with all of the, yes that's not. Yeah, so they, they, and they could have done a ton of other stuff. Like they could have branched out into this a lot earlier, the Netflix.shop stuff. So what I'm trying to say is is that the lever, there's a lot of levers that they can pull and they could have pulled five years ago. And now they're just kind of waiting for that because they don't have to, and the revenue has been growing for 20%. The subscription business is amazing, and now they can just add this on top, but it's something they can kind of wait and do. It's kind of a power that they, you know, they have with the, the advantage they're in. When I think about optionality, I think they can add something substantial
0: to their business that is in a completely different uh, type of business category. Uh, and like Netflix, Netflix shops. could do that. Right. This is not going to add anything meaningful to their business. No way.
1: No, I mean, I'm just saying like it, it's another thing they can do that they have, they, a lever they can pull that they are, that they are pulling now that they haven't for the last 10 years. And there's a lot of other ones that they can do, which would be, you know, video games, I guess is one, although that's kind of, not really option. Eh, well, there's a bit. Video and games. then there's also Video like games theme parks. The lo-
0: most logical next step when I think about optionality for Netflix.
1: Yeah, but it's just not technically feasible right now. All right. Well, is that all? Uh, what, yeah. What other? Do you have any other companies that come to mind? Not top of mind. I guess Facebook, yeah. Shopify, uh, Spotify too. Yeah. Can, it seems like they're pulling them all right now, though. And it's not like that's a bad thing or a good thing. It seems like they're kind of pulling them all. All
0: right, which leads into my next story, which is Spotify. uh, Rumors are that they're in talks to acquire Call Her Daddy, the Call Her Daddy podcast. Uh, So it's reported that they're nearing a deal to bring Alexandra Cooper, who is the host of the show. Alexandra. Alexandra, sorry. uh, And the show, Call It Call." Call her daddy uh, exclusively to its service, and the licensing deal would be worth roughly twenty million or more, according to people familiar with the matter. I guess is the
1: so the it, I mean it's yeah. Wall Street. Someone removed. it's definitely uh, her. <laughs> that, that just means her.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so uh, it would also include something called a first look agreement with the intention of having Spotify help uh, Alexandra Cooper develop other projects as well. For anyone who doesn't know what Call Her Daddy is, it's pretty much. Like, it's all for young women. Um, yeah,
1: like under 30, it's like under 35.
0: It's unfiltered girl talk, I guess, is the way you could describe it.
1: It's uh, perfect overlap for our demographic. Huge, huge for the investment community. Yeah, feel
0: right? <laughs> free to ch- check, out, check out that show right after this one. Um, but did a little bit of, and I think they're still owned by Barstool. There was like a little bit of like some falling out. Uh, a year ago, yeah, or I believe
1: so. they're still under that, yeah.
0: But the barstool logo is still on the podcast logo, or podcast yeah, I'm sure. Record. I'm sure
1: they have a contract that ends and sometime soon, yeah.
0: Anyway, uh, so it's estimated that they have, th- well, they are the fifth large, they were the fifth largest podcast globally on Spotify last year, and PodScribe, which is kind of like a podcast uh, website for all the information you want on them, uh, estimates that they the show has three million listeners, so. Did a little back of the napkin math here. They do one show a week, so if we uh, assume like an average CPM of twenty dollars per thousand listens, and they do three million listens, and that's fairly conservative. I imagine they can get better ads than that. Uh, three million listens per episode, they generate sixty thousand a week. That's roughly three million in ad revenue for a year.
1: Yeah, and I would say that their CPM there's likely going to be higher, not not much higher, and they're likely doing more than one ad. I mean. Probably multiply that three million Checked. by three.
0: I well, yeah. I mean, they probably change them throughout the year, but they are uh, they're presented by Adam and Eve.
1: Yeah, I mean that so makes sense.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I it's kind of like the Cash App thing. I'm guessing for
1: for part the of my take. part of my taking Joe Rogan and stuff like that. Yeah, the I mean, uh, I guess I don't listen to the show, so I, the, this is up in the air. But I would assume they do more than one ad, so I, I think that that ad revenue is probably pushing ten million if if they wanted to.
0: Don't you think they would have had to pay more if they're getting $10 million in ad revenue? Because, I mean... Well, Joe Rogan... What are, the, what are the costs of goods sold? A microphone and a salary?
1: Yeah, so that's the interesting thing here is that you... Okay, there's a lot of variables at play. For one, you would have said the same thing about Joe Rogan, right? Yeah. He wanted to do $100 million for two years. His ad revenue could be a lot more. But the thing is, Spotify takes and it's not just Spotify it's any of these other people that would sign an exclusive deal they take all of the work off of your hands and it's just all this money up front you don't have to worry about the advertising you don't have to worry about anything else maybe you have a producer what along work? with just you just the
0: back like the back end work the producer
1: work yeah yeah a lot of the hard stuff there advertising is really tough I mean all that all that stuff is just taken off your hands
0: yeah does Joe, does Joe Rogan even do ads anymore
1: uh yes yes he does Hmm. There's no way they wouldn't do ads, because I mean, it, it could be just trying to attract the audience. Yes, yeah, that's part of it too, and that's one of the reasons why they're paying so much money for it. Yeah, there's a like I said, it's a, there's a lot of variables at play, so some people can make a lot of arguments for like, oh, this is a bad deal. Oh, this is going to take so many subscribers to make up for that. But there's so many reasons why they would do this. I guess
0: do you uh, do you think this do you like this acquisition? And Then do you like this strategy in general of making? prominent shows exclusive only on Spotify?
1: Yes, I do. I think it is very smart. For one, no one can compete with these deals. Like uh, Barstool probably can't. I guess they're owned by a parent company. So it's not economically feasible for someone like them to pay uh, one of their whatever creators, I guess you will call them, $20 million a year. And a lot of other small podcast studios cannot do that. But Spotify can, and they can make it work from an economic standpoint, because they have 300 and pushing 400 million MAUs. So 356. Yeah. They'll be put hopefully pushing 400 million by the end of this year, plus the premium subscribers. If they can just convince a lot of people to come over to Spotify. I mean, it's just a $20 million customer acquisition cost that they will make up in what Apple could afford it. I don't
0: know why
1: they continue to drop the
0: ball on just about, Everything audio related
1: Yeah, and I mean the, Yeah, Apple can do it as well I guess spot, You know, Amazon can do it as well But the smaller studios Cannot compete with that And again The $20 million They'll make back up And ad revenue And then on top of that They're just convincing Everyone to come over And listen on their service Yeah Alright uh, What about I mean, do you
0: think They deserve That Because they used to get The Netflix comparison a lot Do you think that's maybe more? They're more deserving of it now?
1: Yeah, it's a little different. It's It's different. It's similar, but it's a little. eh, I mean, the similarities. I think. Yeah, you can argue it's similar, but it's more ad-supported. A lot of this stuff isn't behind paywalls, so the the podcast industry is a lot different than like the streaming video, right? I don't know. It feels more like YouTube to me. I mean, more of the
0: strategy. I mean, they get the back. They get like the entire catalog of past shows. True, true. Also. It's almost, in a sense, a uh, Spotify original. Once, I mean, not not really, but all the new shows that are only on Spotify, mm-hmm. could those be considered Spotify originals, kind of like the Netflix original strategy?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, that part makes sense, too. Yeah, and it, we'll see how the economics play out. There Again, there's so many variables at play, and I say repeating that and saying that it's just confusing, and it's really hard because you got to like write all this stuff out of what the value is, you know, where the benefits could be, what the costs are, stuff like that, where, you know, they're trying to build out this ad network. Right. And I guess we use it on yeah, the show. We, this we, can help we, with that.
0: We run a podcast. There are not a lot of operating expenses. I would imagine gross margins on a podcast are like 98%.
1: Yeah. So it yeah. seems
0: like these are profit. Like I can't imagine buying a podcast. I can't imagine there's a big podcast that is isn't immensely profitable
1: yeah no that's exactly right and that's yeah I mean we know from we kind of have the inside inside track there where yeah and that's interesting where okay so like Netflix or whatever they, they can spend 15 billion dollars a year and making movies and TV shows is extremely difficult and yeah there's still you know with podcast um, with shows there's still the cost of acquiring the talent but that's really it that's the entire cost, and then here, you're, I'd say. And, and then, the then you're building brand, back. I guess. Yeah, and there's some equipment, but that's a tiny cost. And then there's building out the back end, which would just be either advertising or putting it behind the subscription paywall. Those are the two options. Yeah, yeah. we'll all see. Right. I like it, though. What's your next story? Okay, Facebook smartwatch. So this is a source from The Verge, which I think you can trust because they seem to have a really good relationship with Facebook. Uh, the Verge seems to drop all of the rumors there, so... Maybe they have, maybe they have the inside scoop to Zuck, uh, but I doubt it. He seems to be out there throwing spears, which is a great video. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this will be the first smartwatch from Facebook, and it'll be coming out apparently next summer. The specs, it has a display, like you would have guessed, just like the Apple Watch, but it will also have two cameras and attachment things where you can put cameras on as well. Uh, and you can have two cameras, one for taking pictures or videos and then uploading to whatever, so it can help you like you know, do stuff on Facebook, you can see the synergies with going live on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and stuff like that. And a quote here is that the idea is to encourage owners of the watch to use it in ways that smartphones are used now. So Zuckerberg, and I guess the company apparently wants to circumvent Apple and Google. And then for future versions of the watch, it'll be used as the key quote, input device for the company's planned AR glasses. Is now these are big ambitions, and they're working on a lot of tech here. And there's that rumor, or not rumor, that leak that there was ten thousand people at Facebook working within this AR smartwatch and hardware division. Is there a scenario where this can win versus the Apple Watch? Maybe. I mean, Apple Apple seems to do very well with hardware. The um, Apple Watch seems to be now. Do you have one? I don't. I don't have uh, one. Apple seems to be pretty good. Like, yeah, like good tech, right? Which,
0: uh, I mean, there's the one with uh, cellular or whatever. And then there's one that's like, it, you can't get, I'm you, blanking on the term. Kind of like iPads, right? Yeah. Basically, you need Wi-Fi as opposed to like an iPhone. Um, and one of them's much more expensive. And I've found that people who have an iPhone are reluctant to pay another $1,000 type, like what you're paying for an iPhone for a watch. Um, but I don't yeah people like the tech people uh, I think people like the way it looks more than anything else that's true and tracking calories is oddly a big thing yeah that's yeah which I don't even know if that's that accurate but
1: yeah those things can't be that accurate <laughs> they're just taking some electrical pulses uh, but it does seem like the Apple watches are more fashion devices people yeah. kind of use them to look good now yeah uh, and I think the only way Facebook could win here is if the tech is like be just 10X better. Yeah, maybe not 10x, but just kind of in that ballpark. It's got to be significantly better to overlook the brand value of Apple and then the privacy issues that people have with Facebook. No matter what. I mean, we know that that's just kind of a bugaboo now, but yeah. people still don't like it. And I just don't, you know, they're eh i hope i'm wrong i guess maybe it'll be cool to see all this sweet tech go out but i just don't know how it can be successful i look at the portal the facebook portal i'm a little hesitant to think this would work uh maybe under a different brand like they they uh, it's not even like they could do it under some sort of other company right yeah, maybe. All right, what's your... Uh, I don't have another story, so what's your last story? Okay, here? yeah, I wanted to, I've wanted. i been trying to wrap up with fun ones, and this is what I'm calling the hacker news legend. Uh, so let's confirm some of our priors here with our, you know, most jobs are not that important thesis. And we're saying that about ourselves, too, so don't think it's like... <laughs> We, it's for most Everyone's beneath us Everyone's Everyone is in the same boat here uh, Even CEO Stuff like that But here's the post From Hacker News There are going to be some quotes here So hopefully listen listening carefully I'll start the quote I currently have 10 fully remote engineering jobs The bar is so low Oversight is non-existent And everyone is so forgiving For underperformance I can coast about 4 to 8 weeks Before a given job Fires me Currently on a $1.5 million run rate for comp this year, and the interviewing process is so much faster today, companies are desperate. It takes me two to three hours of total work or effort to land a new job with thousands to choose from. Uh, what do you <laughs> think of that? That
0: That's a hell of a strategy. I honestly respect this guy for gaming the system.
1: Yeah. It seems... It's... We can spec him on a $1.5 million revenue run rate. Let's... I mean we can take a SPAC out about $100 million right now in valuation. Like doing
0: the work for any of these jobs.
1: Well, we'll get to the later quotes here, yeah. But, I, I mean, my kind of thought was, I bet all these companies that he's working for have really high gross margins. And that operating expense line is just full of bloat, which, I mean, I'm kind of in, I'm coming around to the operating expenses at a lot of these software companies are, almost all of them can be taken down and the companies would be doing just fine. Do you believe, Do you agree with that, or? Uh,
0: yes, and I find it just fascinating that this guy, like, is he not in and out of hundreds of meetings every day?
1: Yeah. So that was one of the he said he had is that he always just claims Wi-Fi issues and then goes on um, uh, black screen for Zoom or whatever they're using. But he says it's become an issue. Yeah. He has to. He says he has to do jobs where they're not doing a ton of meetings every day. Jeez. What about like? Isn't his resume
0: kind of tarnished after? Yeah, that's what I was thinking.
1: That's what I was thinking. Like, uh, there might be some, you know, the sort of the in like two are sustainable. Yes, but if you're on a 1.5 million run rate, if you do that for a year or two, basically, depending on your, you know, depending on what you want to do with your life, I mean, that can set you up for a lot of freedom.
0: I also wonder how many of these tech companies are really going through old employers to vet new employees
1: oh here uh, let's get to the other quotes here that kind of shows what is happening at these companies here's here's some follow-ons from when people are asking about it within the comments quote i put in about an hour per job per day which makes sense quote many of these positions are senior level data science where measuring progress can be difficult Okay, that makes sense too. And then the last one here, which I think kind of hits on the point from an investment perspective, quote, I target overly funded growth mode companies where they're focused on adding unnecessary headcount to work on poorly defined projects. <laughs> Let's get this guy to just become, use him as an example to be an activist investor at a lot of these software companies. You guys claim you have 80% gross margins. Trim the fat guys. Let's get to 30% profit margins here.
0: Yeah, I just... That's so funny. It's just capitalizing on these rampant yeah. VC-funded companies.
1: Yes, exactly. Like the, it, I think that's a good plan where someone gets say like a Series B, hundred million dollars or something like that. They're they're Time really taking off. Hire random headcount. They got to hire like a hundred people, and that's going to be tough to do. Some people are going to fall through the cracks. they are like, what's he up to? It's I don't so know.
0: weird that like companies get. When they get in that growth phase, they start to target adding more people instead of
1: like, oh, I thought software we need this scale be solved. <laughs> I, I know, I thought software was supposed to scale with less people. Yeah, I mean, I mean is this why all these software companies and, sil- and not just software, these Silicon Valley companies can never get to profitability? They're always theoretically going to get to profitability. I think in a bear market, we're going to see
0: if there was like a sustained bear market, a lot of these companies would get to profitability.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They
0: just trim the fat.
1: Yeah. And then going more, you know how a lot there's that chart and i guess the data that profit margins as a percentage of GDP have risen from like the average over the 20th century at 6% to 12% now. Have you ever seen that stuff? Yeah. And where people argue, they're like, well, when we get reversion to the mean, you know, that's going to be tough for a lot of these companies. And I'm like, Guys, you realize we're on path for like twenty percent. Yeah, I don't know if reversion to the mean fits in there. I don't think so either. I mean, if anything, if it's just it, it can march higher.
0: Yeah, it's it's more profitable, kind of just by its very nature, like these digital businesses.
1: Yeah, and I guess it depends on what country you're looking at, you know. But that's more of a, that's a whole nother discussion altogether. Either way, I thought that was a good way to wrap up the show. Probably one of the best. Or funniest post I saw or the f- past few months.
0: All right. I think that's going to do it. Thanks again to Jamie Powell for coming on the show. Uh, we want to remind our listeners that we are general partners at Arch Capital. Clients may have positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.